This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Either this was a direct act by the Russian state against our country, or the Russian government lost control of its potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent. It really is a rogue nation. If we can make a deal, it'll be a great thing. And if we can't, something will have to happen. But certainly the strategic context is one which is more uncertain than I can remember at any time in my career. Hello, I'm Kate Jabot, and welcome to the final sit-rep of 2018, and what a year it's been. We've had Novichok and Salisbury, President Trump making friends with North Korea, Brexit worries, continuing struggles in the Middle East as well as the centenary of the end of the First World War. A hundred years of the RAF, and the Royal Navy put its new carrier to the test. We've got lots to talk about, and a whole load of experts to do it with. But first, what did the Chief of the Defence Staff make of it all? Here's General Nick Carter. Many things have stood out. I mean, I think World War I commemorations were right at the forefront of what we've seen, not least because, of course, that reminds us of what war really is like, and that's something we should never forget. But also RAF 100, which has been a hugely uplifting experience and has been beautifully done by the Royal Air Force. And we will mem- remember for many, many months that uh, wonderful flypass over Buckingham Palace. Busy for the Navy, um, the Queen Elizabeth... Um, competing and performing and doing the business in Manhattan. I mean, an extraordinary experience that as well, so very impressive there. But also I think we've spread our wings a lot further than one might have expected in 2018. You know, we've had shipping in the Indo-Pacific, enforcing UN sanctions off the North Korean coast, a first for us as well. Um, The RAF have been busy on Ops Shader, that's in Syria and Iraq, an extraordinary operation that has been. And, of course, we've been busy with two major exercises, Save Surya 3, which is the largest exercise that we've mounted for a very long time in Oman, which had around 5,500 servicemen and women on it, and done in conjunction with Exercise Trident Juncture, which, of course, was up in northern Norway, where we sent a significant number of vehicles, some 400 or so, over a land line of communication of 2,500 kilometres, which was pretty remarkable. So, all in all, it's been a very busy year. But also with some interesting events. I mean, the events in Salisbury were pretty remarkable. Uh, And that, of course, brings to life, I think, the threat that uh, we're now up against. And that, I think, has portents for the future, uh, which we should probably reflect on. It's incredible when you, when you list all those events in, in a 12-month period. Uh, has, have any of those been particularly challenging, do you think? Or are there any events that spring to mind where you go, I'm just glad to see the back of 18? Yes, so, I mean, I think what we've seen is indicative of the strategic context in which the armed forces now are operating. When you think that last month we had some 19,500 servicemen and servicewomen either deployed on some 30-odd operations or taking part in the exercises I referred to. I'm afraid that's the sort of rhythm that we're at at the moment, uh, and I don't know what we can predict for next year. But my sense is, with Britain leaving the European Union, the level of commitment is not necessarily going to decrease. I just hope that we can deliver a level of certainty, which is what I think our servicemen and servicewomen and their families absolutely are looking for. And that's, I guess uppermost in your mind when you look ahead to 2019? Yes, again, I mean, di- so difficult and possible indeed to predict the future, but certainly the strategic context is one which is more uncertain than I can remember at any time in my career. And that, of course, has a bearing on all of us, but particularly on our servicemen, servicewomen and their families. 
That was the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sinek Carter, talking to Mario Chrysostomo. Well, joining me around the table today for this bumper edition, we have General Lord Downett, a former Chief of the General Staff, Dr Karen von Hippel, who is Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Dr Julian Lewis, Chairman of the Commons Defence Committee, as well as Defence Analyst Professor Michael Clark and our very own Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. I'm going to ask you briefly to tell us what you made of the last 12 months. Uh, Lord Dannett, this is the third year in a row. Welcome back. I'm asking that question. Are things getting better or worse, do you think? Well, I don't think it's a question of better or worse. It's certainly a question of busier or less busy. And I think, as the Chief of Defence Staff has, has just said, uh, 2018 has been quite a remarkable year. Um, and I don't want to repeat uh, the list of things that he's just been through. But I think, looking ahead, I think our service people have got to expect that this tempo of busyness will continue. Let's just hope that the resources can be found to support them in what they do to secure the nation's uh, peace and security for the future. Dr Karen von Hippel, your thoughts on 2018? Well, I think uh, it's been an interesting year. We've learned to deal with uh, uncertainty uh, coming from the United States, and that's been quite interesting. Uh, uh, lots of concern about Russia, about uh, North Korea, about uh, countries asserting themselves more because the U.S. is pulling back globally. So, you know, I'm more anxious at the end of this year than I thought I might be. Julian Lewis? A year of intensifying threats, but growing realisation, exactly as Lord Dannett said earlier, of the need for more resources for defence, and a year in which the defence team in the MOD showed signs of fighting back against the Treasury and trying to restore defence to the sort of level of priority it ought to have. Michael Clark, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think of 2018 as a rather pivotal year where the rubber starts to really hit the road. I think it's, it's a year that marks the end of a series of one sort of challenge that we've been looking at for the last 10 or 15 years and the real beginnings of new challenges, of re different sorts of challenges, which have become much more manifest. So the uh, chemical weapons issues, uh, problems of cyber security, hybrid uh, operations, the new assertiveness of Russia, all these things have started to become very real in 2018. We could see them before, but now we feel them and the need to reorientate ourselves to these newer challenges, as well as not ignoring the old ones, is now pretty clear. Christopher Lee. I think the Middle East this year, uh, Yemen, a horror story of which we're part of it. Uh, Syria, the war won by uh, Assad when we said no, he would have to uh, stand, stand aside. And then the whole business with Saudi Arabia and uh, Mr. the death of Mr. Khashoggi. Um, but I think more than anything else is listening there to the uh, CDS who's saying, you know, 19,500 19, people deployed in 30 exercises, etc. And everything that is going on, why then are we ha not sort of getting to the biggest problem? That's the manpower to actually support all the ambitions of, of the British forces by actually having enough people to, to actually drive them. Lord Dunnett, just to come back to something that uh, Michael Clark was saying about adjusting to new challenges, how do you think the armed forces should be viewing uh, their strategy going forward and how they should adapt? Well, I think we can take a bit of a cue from the uh, modernising defence programme that was announced over the last few days. You could say it's just so many words, not much substance, but mm. what it's trying to point towards um, is that we've got to... Um, put greater emphasis on the kind of capabilities that we genuinely think we're going to be using in the future, countering cyber threats and novel, uh, novel threats like that, while at the same time ensuring, particularly with a resurgent Russia, that we have got sufficient conventional forces to meet our wider responsibilities. And as I think we're already beginning to allude to, 
if the Britain, if the UK is going to play the kind of role in the world that traditionally it has and plays in the future, we've got to fund defence properly. And frankly, we've never spent as little as two percent of GDP on defence uh, any time since the Second World War. And you know, full marks to the defence secretary and his team for taking the treasury on and actually ensuring that we have the prospect in the spending review next year of upping the spend on defence. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion this year about defence spending, particularly with the new in post-defence secretary Gavin Williamson carrying out this MDP, the Modernising Defence Programme. Uh, Julian Lewis, that seemed to drag on for an awfully long time. First we were told we would get the details before the NATO summit in July. You finally made the announcement this week. What did you make of it? Was it underwhelming, as Neil Griffith, the shadow defence secretary, said? I think that was a little bit unfair because what we've got to recognise is that by stripping out the defence strand from the National Security Capability Review, which was the original plan to include defence along with all sorts of other security requirements, what Gavin Williamson achieved was uh, the avoidance of a further hollowing out of the armed forces. And by pulling this away from a situation where a review that was supposed to be fiscally neutral would have meant that every pound extra spent on intelligence services, counter-disinformation or whatever, would have meant a pound less spent on the Army, the Royal Navy or the Royal Air Force. Uh, effectively, this separate MDP operation was to head off that dangerous prospect and in that it entirely succeeded. Mm, how has the Royal United Services Institute looked at this, Karen? Uh, we've been hosting a, a number of events uh, and, and writing a lot about this. I mean, I think the, the, the other challenges are, uh, you know, planning for uh, defence spending in the next decade or so when uh, tools and certain types of capabilities evolve much quicker. And so how do you square that circle? And I think that's another challenge, especially on the cyber front. Mm, Lord Diner, Christopher Lee mentioned uh, the problem of manpower. Let's talk specifically about that, the Army's biggest problem. Um, the MOD handed the recruitment contract to the wrong people, didn't they? Is that what went wrong? Well, I think it's a reflection of the overall drive to try and be more efficient, if you like, put it one way, or to save money being, being sort of straightforward about it. And I think it, well, I know it was against the Army's um, original judgment not to take recruiting sergeants um, out of the high street and to close recruiting offices in the high street. And it was thought reasonable to give it a go to try and online online system of, of recruiting. But the biggest problem was not so much the company that was given the, the task, but actually that the IT network infrastructure to support that failed and frankly couldn't match the task. So we've got ourselves into a really difficult bind. It's taking over 300 days for people to join the army. Everyone knows that's wrong. Luckily, the army knows it's wrong. The Ministry of Defence knows it's wrong. Capita knows it's got to do better. And things are going to improve as we put soldiers back in the high street enable people, civilians, to talk to soldiers to get a feel for what the military life is going to be like and critically cut down the time between first saying, I think I'd like to join, to actually finding your way through into stage one, phase one training. Michael Clark, let's just talk a little bit more about Gavin Williamson's first four years as Defence Secretary. How do you think he's done? Mm. He's done better than a lot of people thought he would. I mean, he's, you know, he's this young man of 42, 43. He's taken on Philip Hammond um, in the Treasury, uh, and he's nailed his colours to the mast, and he did so this week again with the Modernising Defence Programme because he said, I'm putting £160 million into a new Defence Transformation Fund, which he is very, very keen on himself, and I'm looking for the Treasury, effectively, to put another £340 million in next year. Now, again, 
he said, you know, in public, I want another 340 million from the Treasury for this particular fund. And he wants to be seen not as a caretaker Secretary of State, but as a moderniser. And he, is, he, he gets it in terms of the need to modernise. But of course, the problem, as we've discussed on the programme in the past, is that although the MOD recognises all of these needs, it's only usually got the small change of defence to spend on them. And so he really is trying to create some genuine headroom in the budget and squeeze the Treasury for sensible amounts of money to look at some of the future technological challenges. And I think, you know, full marks to him for that. But he does, he, he sticks his neck out. So far, he hasn't had it chopped off. <laughs> and we'll see next year if he, if he emerges from the Brexit process, whatever that's going to be, with some political credit, then he may well have a lot more seniority, as it were, in government as a Secretary just, of State for Defence. Just specifically on this new fund, this £160 million, pounds, Julian yeah. Lewis, I mean, isn't this something that should be done already by the MOD? It's, just explain uh, what it's supposed to do and, and, and what more it can add that we're not already getting. Well, I can only go by what I've read in the document. It appears to be an attempt to mobilise the best brains to think of innovative ways in which the armed forces can be prepared for future forms of engagement that involve 21st century technology. That has to be a good thing. This is BFBS SITREP. Listening to the SITREP Review of the Year, I'm Kate Chabot and I'm joined for this one-hour special by General Lord Dannett, Dr Karen von Hippel, Dr Julian Lewis, Professor Michael Clark, and, of course, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Now, 2018 might be remembered for one story in particular which led to a new low in Britain's relationship with Russia. It is a very strange situation. A man in his 60s and a woman in her 30s found unconscious on a bench in the centre of Salisbury in a very busy shopping area with no... Either this was a direct act by the Russian state against our country or the Russian government lost control of its potentially catastrophically damaging nerve agent and allowed it to get into the hands of others. It's becoming more and more obvious that this attack against the Skripals in Salisbury is most probably another blatantly framed legal adventure. My appeal to the public is simple. Did you see these suspects at any time between Friday the 2nd of March and Sunday the 4th of March? There's the famous Salisbury Cathedral, famous not only in Europe but in the whole world. It's famous for its 123-metre spire. It would be a terrible step back for the world if we went to a situation where using these horrible, horrible weapons uh, just became normal. We don't want that to happen, not for Britain's sake, not for the world's sake, and that's why our message to Russia is very straightforward. If you do this, the price will be too high. That was the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, with a warning to Russia. Uh, Michael Clark, we spoke to you a great deal on Sitra about this story, which was really quite extraordinary, wasn't it? Yes, the Skripal uh, poisoning was, um, or the attempted poisoning of Skripals, was, was an act of complete incompetence from start to finish. And the more we found out about it, the more, as it were, ruthless but amateurish the whole thing seemed. And then, to add to that, we had the Russians caught red-handed um, trying to interfere with WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, over, over uh, athletic uh, results uh, at the OPCW in uh, in uh, the Hague in on chemical weapons over Syria and they've been caught as it were red-handed three times this year and as a result of course the uh, the GRU is in very bad odor in in Russia and indeed the the head of the GRU died mysteriously about a month ago a man of 64 uh, and for unexplained reasons he's not now with us any longer we can only you know draw our own conclusions from that but the Russians are certainly on this issue that they're on the back foot at least tactically for once 
sense on this, but it shows they don't they don't actually care very much. Um, they can get, they, I mean, Putin can be embarrassed by all of this, and Britain actually has played a very good game on this particular issue. We've had a good year on on this sort of thing, mm. um, but in fact, the the Russians have taken us in the past as a soft touch. They don't really mind that the that the world gangs up on them in on these issues because they feel as if they're sending a message out to all would-be traitors that, like the Mafia, we're coming for you. Sooner or later, we will get you. Mm, Christopher Lee, you've told me that the biggest story in defence and strategic thinking in 2018 has been what are we supposed to think about President Putin? Yeah, a slight exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, what I said, not what, what I told you. Um, I just get the impression that every time there is a glitch or there is something which we don't understand or we think we understand about East British relations or the Russians are coming, it sounds like the Cold War all over again. And it sounds like it in the language we, we use. It also sounds like it in, in the fact that we go immediately to Putin and say Putin must have signed this off. This is the same with the, the whole idea with, 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 with an agent which you put into a place like uh, Salisbury. Uh, you say Putin must have known about it. Peter may not have known about it, and it's the question that we ought to sort of ask ourselves sometimes. We are demonstrating we do not understand the Russian system, how it works internally enough, or if we do, we're making a big sort of uh, a false case about it. Mm. It is not always like this. And I'll tell you one other thing. The GRU director who died at 62, 64 or whatever, that's not sinister. That's not sinister. I mean, normally the, the GRU do not kill off their, their, their directors. They kill off some of the lowercase people, starting with Penkovsky. Uh, Lord Dannett, um, we heard Jeremy Hunt's warning there to Russia, and we hear that uh, at this big press conference that Putin's giving today, he's giving a, sort of dire warnings about the prospects or the effects of a nuclear war, perhaps uh, destruction of civilization and even the planet. Uh, how seriously are we supposed to take this kind of rhetoric? Well, I think we should take note of it, and we should take it quite seriously, but I think... Um as far as Putin himself is concerned, I'm afraid I remain firmly of the view that, scrape him to the core, you get an unreformed KGB colonel there whose beloved Warsaw Pact and Soviet Union was destroyed by the solidarity of NATO at the end of the Cold War, and he would love nothing better than to chip away at the solidarity of NATO in order to see the demise of NATO in his lifetime. And I think that's his overall motivation. And although he may not have signed off on the Salisbury Novichok attack, people were acting to his intent. So I'm afraid Putin, as far as I'm concerned, is, sits there right there in the bullseye of our problem. Karen von Heppel. Yeah, I, I think I take a slightly different view from the others. I mean, I think if he wanted to kill uh, Skripal, he could have they could have run him over with a car pretty easily. I think Putin likes to poke his fingers in other people's eyes, and he's doing this all over the world. He's punching way above his weight in terms of interfering in the Balkans, in the Baltics, in the United States, in Western Europe, and in the Middle East. He's reasserting himself on the global stage. We'll be talking about that in a little while. Let's not forget that Vladimir Putin described the breakup of the Warsaw Pact as the uh, greatest disaster of the 20th century. And that was a century which included two global conflicts and uh, the uh, death of millions in uh, famines in the Soviet Union and uh, disastrous losses in Soviet people and military personnel. So that shows what sort of a person we're dealing with. And the fact that uh, an operation of this sort could be carried out without his knowledge, I find absolutely incredible, sorry to say, but absolutely incredible. Well, let's now look at what the Royal Navy have been up to this year. Here's the first Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones talking to Claire Sadler. 
2018 has been an extraordinary year for the Royal Navy. I set the goal for the year um, right at the start with the phrase expanding maritime horizons because I could see already what the Navy was going to be asked to do this year. Uh, we were continuing our presence in the Asia-Pacific region, something we've um, established for the first time in a number of years with a rolling sequence of ships going through there, which has had a huge impact on our allies in the region. But, of course, that has to be planned, carefully synchronised and, and well supported. We also knew we would have Queen Elizabeth at sea for much of the year, doing first-class flying trials with F-35B Lightning jets, and that would attract a, a huge amount of attention in the United States, and rightly so, as we finally put jets on the carrier uh, and showed the route to operational status for her. I knew we had some very big exercises coming up, through the year, Exercise Safe Surya in Oman, Exercise Trident Juncture in Norway, which would draw almost all the available Royal Navy and Royal Marines high readiness capability, and rightly so, but all the time keeping a base load tasking going in UK waters, in the Mediterranean, in the Gulf, of all the things we do on a daily basis. And this was going to draw heavily on our people, so it was always likely to be a busy year, and so it's proved. So some great achievements uh, in 2018, but no year goes by for any service without any challenges. What have the challenges been? Well, at the start of the year, as well as setting expanding maritime horizons as a theme, I also set out my three priorities for the year. And there's no surprises in what they are. Success on operations is the benchmark against which we will always correctly be judged. So I had that right at the top of the list, uh, and we have done that. I also had a different priority this year for carrier strike. Uh, rather than just getting Queen Elizabeth to sea and getting her through trials, it was establishing the carrier at the heart of a carrier strike group. Uh, and that's a much more demanding test uh, that we haven't yet completely filled and we'll have more of that to do next year. But the third one, and this is where possibly the biggest challenge comes, uh, I centred around the word resilience because we can't do anything that we do in home waters or abroad unless we have the sustainability to do it. And that's two-pronged. It's both the equipment resilience in our ships and submarines, our aircraft and our Royal Marines and their equipment. And some of that equipment is ageing across all fighting arms and we've got to make sure we can sustain it properly, we can give sufficient downtime to repair it, and we can future-proof it as we start to recapitalise the Navy. But resilience is also about people, and we're nothing without the ability of our people to fight, uh, to train hard, uh, but also to have a sense of balance in their lives and to keep them with us in our journey to the future Navy. So I focus very much on those challenges this year. So let's look forward now to 2019. What is on the horizon for the Royal Navy? What are the, the big things coming? Well, the horizons will carry on expanding, and 2019 is going to be another busy operational year. It's going to have some big highlights in it, a major deployment into the Baltic in the summer with our joint expeditionary force partners in the Baltic and Nordic nations. Uh, that's a hugely important opportunity for us. We're also going to see the second carrier at sea this year, HMS Prince of Wales, now structurally complete at Rosyth and fitting out, uh, should achieve her ready-for-sea date sometime in the summer. And it'll be wonderful to show that with now two carriers at sea, we're working up towards a continuous carrier strike capability. We're going to see Royal Marines exercising at scale in Norway, uh, honing their skills in the high north, uh, and that's an enhanced piece of their capability that we're returning back to, uh, which is a significant moment. 
But right around the world, um, you're going to see the Royal Navy. You're going to see all five of its fighting arms, and you're going to see us continuing to deliver what the government asks us to do in support of Britain's vital interests, its security and its prosperity. The first Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones, uh, Dr Julian Lewis, HMS Queen Elizabeth finally had some jets land on it, an important milestone this year. Yes, absolutely, and um, it's important to realise that this illustrates how long it takes to bring to reality strategic plans, in this case the strategic plan for carrier task groups was laid out back in the Labour Strategic Defence Review of 1997-98 and now we're beginning to see uh, this come to fruition. If you remember, the idea was of having a sea base, which meant that we could project air power from the sea by a carrier task force and land power from the sea by an amphibious task force. And we got the carrier task force almost ready this year, but we very nearly lost the amphibious task force, which is something we might want to discuss later on, how we nearly lost HMS Albion and HMS Bulwark. But we didn't. (laughs) But we didn't, thanks to a strong political campaign and uh, a sensible decision by the people in charge of the MOD at the end of the process. Mm, Christopher Lee, a good year for the Royal Navy? Even the PR's getting it right, isn't it? Well, yes it is, but uh, I mean, the first thing, Lord, they're going on about, you know, we're going to have two carriers at sea. I'd like him to find the manpower for two carriers at sea uh, for more than sort of a display up into in, in, into the southwestern approaches. Yes, it did. Um, it got a television programme, and uh, it was about HMS Duncan going into the Black Sea and um, setting itself up, leading a NATO task force. Six weeks of um, mesmerising uh, filming on board, showing a ship's company actively working together. A great recruiting thing, telephones, ring at the MOD, how do I join the Navy, etc. Meantime, there's the RAF... You know, it's 100 years looking at this and saying, we can't do that sort of thing because all we've got to show is an aeroplane. Sit rep with Kate Chabot. On Sit Rep's review of the year, when Kim met Trump, the RAF celebrates 100 years in the sky and with less than 100 days to go and a no-deal Brexit leave Britain open to new threats. PFBS Sit Rep. Now, this time last year, SITREP mused about the relationship between North Korea and the US. We thought there might be a big meeting between the two leaders. Looked a bit shaky in January, though. The United States will never be able to start a war against me and our country. The whole of America is within range of our nuclear weapons, and a nuclear button is always on my desk. It really is a rogue nation. If we can make a deal, it'll be a great thing. And if we can't, something will have to happen. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un said he is committed to denuclearization. Going from one position where you were months ago, when you were threatened about raining down fire and fury to the potential of a meeting, that is an incredible jump in a matter of months. The denuclearization of the Korean peninsula of North Korea. The denuke. Denuke. Then the two men emerged, earnest demeanours and cautious smiles. The president in trademark red tie, Kim in equally trademark black Mao suit. The handshake lasted 12 seconds, and then, with their respective translators, they walked to a nearby anteroom and exchanged pleasantries. 
Well, at the beginning of 2018, the rhetoric had ramped right up between US President Donald Trump and the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. So who could would have predicted that just six months later the pair would meet at a hastily arranged peace summit in Singapore? Well, Dr Karen von Hippel, did you see that one coming? Uh, certainly not at the beginning. It's a, a, another example of, of Trump's... Uh, his love of his own uh, deals that he can make and pushing people to the limits. But uh, it's an enormous concern because, of course, the North Koreans haven't abided by anything that they've agreed to, and Trump's own team have been telling him that. Meanwhile, he's professed love uh, for the the dear leader, and it's not really clear where it's going to go because, uh, you know, the North Koreans have zero motivation to denuclearize. And uh, I don't really, I, I just, I'm, I'm very worried about that. Not clear where it's going to go. Professor Michael Clark, did the summit achieve very much rather than the photo opportunity beyond that? Well, not for the Americans, no. I mean, it was, in diplomatic terms, it was incompetent from America's point of view because what Donald Trump did, I mean, he, he as Karen said, he tries this, he tries to, to develop his own personality with the deal, but he's not very good at it because he gave uh, Kim Jong-un all the respectability of a one-to-one -one summit and has got absolutely nothing in return, as we all expected. And at the time, we, we didn't want to be churlish. We said, well, look, sometimes astonishing breakthroughs are made against all the odds, let's hold our breath and see. But actually it's worked out exactly as we really thought it would and Kim Jong-un has given no more than Kim Jong-il or, or Kim Il-sung before him, which is, is always to demand a lot and then do very, very little. But to talk about the peace process, about putting in danger denuclearization, they're never going to denuclearize, and certainly not uh, for, with anything that Donald Trump can do about it. Mm. So, tr I mean, Trump was always talking up options he didn't really have. They can attack North Korea, which is a pretty loud the option, or they can go back to a regime approach, the six-party talks, which Trump really doesn't believe in. These one-to-one -one summits show him up for with, with the intellectual weakness that I think he brings to these things. Some decisive action, though, Karen, in terms of uh, tearing up the Iran nuclear deal this year. Yeah, which is also unfortunate. Uh, I almost feel that he wants to put his stamp on everything. And so if the Iranians came back and basically said, yes, we will negotiate with no preconditions to Trump, he would basically tweak it and then declare it his own, similar to what he did with NAFTA. And it may be the best way forward, because otherwise, you know, a huge concern that Iran will obviously uh, go ahead and start producing again. We ought to remind ourselves that the United Kingdom, France, etc., in, 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 in uh, Europe, members of NATO, did not tear up the same deal as, as, as Mr mm -hmm. Trump did. Lord Dunnett, your thoughts on the, on the presidency so far of Donald Trump and the impact he's had on, uh, on world affairs? Well, I think we've already alluded to it. Um, from his business background, he likes to make deals, and he thinks that if he can get into a room with someone or in a close space with someone, he can cut a deal and make a deal. But um, as Michael Clark was saying, actually, this has turned out to be pretty shallow. Um, and in many ways, it's actually worse than that in the context of, of North Korea, because one of the things that Donald Trump suspended, or may even have given up more indefinitely, is so-called military drills and, and war games, as people like to call them. And it's really important that, in the context of maintaining a conventional capability, that the US forces in that, in that area, in conjunction with the South Korean forces, continue regularly to exercise together to show that there are different levels of deterrence and different levels at which, if push came to shove, um, Americans and others uh, could respond. So 
actually, Trump, as a deal-maker, has proved himself to be pretty inept as a statesman on the international field. Julian Lewis. I think it's important to remember the lesson of the Cold War in dealing with communism is that containment is the best policy. And uh, North Korea and Iran have to be contained rather than undermined from the outside. And we wait to use the Marxist vernacular for their internal contradictions to bring them down. Now, the trouble with the North Korean situation was that it was ratcheting up onto a, a pathway of greater and greater name-calling and entrenched positions, and the fact that Trump shared responsibility for that ratcheting up shouldn't detract from the fact that at least he abruptly changed course and then de-escalated the situation, and that's a good thing because it could have got completely out of hand. Dr Karen von Hippel, his latest, um, Trump's latest declaration is 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 beaten and he's announcing he's pulling US troops out of Syria. President Putin very happy about that. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, President Putin happy, Iran happy, and 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 Assad is also happy. I think it's a big mistake. And in fact, uh, President uh, President Trump's ISIL envoy, Brett McGurk, counter ISIL envoy, he even said doing something like that would be reckless before uh, Trump made this announcement. Abandoning Kurdish partners on the ground, mm. ceding ground for the Syrian regime to basically take over and potentially getting out of the way for the Turks to uh, take over some of the territory as well. Yeah, we'll be talking a little bit more about the Middle East later in the programme. Uh, now let's look at the view for 2018 from the sky. Here's the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, talking to Maria Christos Dumou. For RAF 100, um, for me, being on the forecourt of Buckingham Palace with Her Majesty the Queen and being able to display to both um, uh, her, the Queen and uh, the whole nation the Royal Air Force's skill and professionalism and discipline, both on the ground uh, and in the air, that that's be not just a highlight for this uh, year, but you know one of the absolute highlights for my career. But also the highlight of the year was the realisation at that point where, for example, we put 22 typhoons and that magnificent 100 uh, down the mall. We also had typhoons doing quick reaction alert in the United Kingdom, in the Falkland Islands and in Romania. We had typhoons flying over Iraq and Syria doing the missions uh, there. Uh, and so that you know that's one of the highlights as well is that we were not only able to do, able to do RAF 100 well, but able to do it against that backdrop of you know huge pressure. That for me is such a proud moment as well. And in terms perhaps of of challenges or maybe reasons that you'll be not too displeased to see the back of 2018, <laughs> were there any particular challenges or any particular kind of hurdles that needed? navigate? Well, you know, it, I, I can't think of any um, immediately. I, what's in my mind there is that um, just the sheer busyness of this year for all of us across the whole RAF uh, force and the, uh, the family. Um, when I look into 2019, how do I see it being different? Well, clearly we're not going to do an RAF 101, for example, but what we now want to do is make sure that we build on the legacy and the foundations that we've laid with RAF uh, 100. So um, I think it's looking into next year, and uh, we're calling it RAF Inspire. It's that legacy of RAF 100. Um, so it's not, a, if you like, a, a negative point in any way, but it's a significant challenge. I mean, every organisation has this challenge of after a major anniversary, uh, you uh, set up a legacy, 
how do you actually deliver on that legacy? Uh, and that's the sort of thing that you know we need to look at um, for the future of the Air Force. You touched on 2019, which will be with us in seemingly moments, um, a year of change for you both personally and professionally as we, we welcome a, a new Chief of the Air Staff in um, Mike Brixton. What would your words be to Mike on the handover? Are there any particularly sort of big subjects in your to-do list that you might be kind of pointing to? Well, Mike and I know each other well. Um, uh, he's one of my deputy commanders now. He's a member of the Air Force Board. And in fact, um, uh, we were together in a tornado squadron 20 years ago. So we've known each other for a long time. Um, you know, I'm delighted that uh, he has uh, got the Chief of the Air Staff appointment. I know he is as well. Uh, I've still got seven months left. So um, there's still you know, a considerable part of uh, or amount of work for me to do. Um, I think my um, advice... Um, to Mike uh, as he takes over in uh, in July of next year will be that success ultimately is can we continue to have the outstanding people we have in the Royal Air Force that is what is you know got us through our first hundred years of you know achievement and indeed sacrifice what will get us through our next hundred years is continuing to have that exceptional quality of people and so the primary role, I believe, of Chief of the Air Staff, and certainly how I've approached it, is that is my primary job, is to ensure that we can continue to recruit and retain um, outstanding people, the future of our Air Force. That was the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hilliard. Michael Clark. it was another busy year of operations for the RAF, but a lot of their work goes unseen. Do you think RAF 100 has helped raise their profile amongst the general public? Well, I certainly hope so, because it should do. I mean, one of the problems the RAF has, unlike the Navy and the Army to the same degree, is that they, they don't quite have so many iconic things, other than the Battle of Britain and a more recent acceptance of the role of Bomber Command in the war. It's, it's a bit difficult to present the RAF, as, as Christopher was saying, in as tangible a way as you can present the Navy with its permanent presence of ships and the Army with all of the different things that the Army does in its greater numbers. Mm. And, you know, one of the problems for the RAF, I think, is that they've done a lot this year for sure and uh, and they're in sort of small expeditionary air wings which are really penny packets of aircraft with a big footprint that that really stretches all the backup so it really stretches the transport and the refueling and the basing and the numbers and so the RAF has been running very hot this year but most of the public don't realize it because it's it's you know a four a detachment of four aircraft in Romania for a short period it's the operation shader stuff it's one or two aircraft in the Falklands uh, four aircraft in the Baltics. Uh, they don't have the mass which gets attention in the way that the other services occasionally do. Mm, Julian Lewis, as Stephen Hillier mentioned about the legacy, what do you think that could be? The legacy from those events that we were commemorating uh, certainly, I think, did strike a, a strong chord with the public. It certainly struck a very strong chord in Parliament and there was a very moving debate in which um, various members of Parliament uh, expressed the uh, feelings they had for the service and the stories of members of their family from previous generations who'd served with the Royal Air Force, and some of them were very moving indeed. So I think it's the usual thing that in times when conflict is 
as it were, over the horizon, if not below the surface. Uh, the services don't get the recognition they deserve, but deep down within all of us, there is an understanding that without the support uh, underpinning democracy that the services provide, then we wouldn't live in a free society. Interesting, isn't it, that out of, out of the three chiefs of staff, Sir Stephen Hillier is the only one that's emphasised that part of his task and his successor's task is to recruit and retain uh, people. The job of the RAF is to keep planes in the air. The people that need to do that, not the pilots, but the techies. And that's what they're going to have a big drive on next year. This is BFBS. Sit rep. You're listening to the SITREP Review of the Year. I'm Kate Jerboe. joined for this one by General Lord Dannett, Dr Karen von Hippel, Dr Julian Lewis, Professor Michael Clark, and, of course, BFBS analyst Christopher Lee. Now, the Middle East was dominated by two issues in 2018, the war in Syria and the war in Yemen. With help from Iran and Russia, President Assad won the Syria war, something the US-UK-Saudi-Qatar coalition said would be impossible. Uh, Karen von Hippel, even this year the UK was saying there would be no peace in the country till Assad stepped down. So did Britain back the wrong side in Syria? Well, I, I wouldn't say that the war is, is over. I think it's still, it's, it's trickling on. It's been a war of attrition for some time now. Certainly, uh, the Assad regime has been able to take the upper hand with the support of Iran and Russia. They were about to, the regime was about to, to basically lose and, and collapse in September 2015 when the Russians came in and really saved them. Uh, but it's going to trickle on for some time. We haven't seen the last of, of uh, the so-called Islamic State. There you know, potentially up to 20,000 fighters in Syria and Iraq, and they will go underground. They've lost most so of Donald their territory. So Donald Trump's got it wrong then? He's totally got it wrong. <laughs> And they will go underground. I mean, they have lost their territory, and that has been a success. Not all of their territory. There's still some pockets. But it does not mean that that's the end of them. And they will disperse into other countries, etc. And so, you know, the pulling the U.S. troops out is really uh, removing a, a, a tangible deterrent, not just to the Islamic State, but also to the Assad regime. Lord Dannett, you firmly believe that the U.K.'s got it wrong over Syria, don't you? Well, I've taken that view for the last four or five years, and I think it's reasonable to to be of that opinion. I mean, after all, what we saw from Iraq and then from Libya, that these were artificial countries, as Syria is indeed an artificial country, only held together by a strong regime. I think the mistake that we made in the immediate afterblast of the so-called Arab Spring of 2011 was for the West immediately to put Assad in the naughty corner and say he's got to go. I think we should have worked much, much harder to try and get alongside him to endeavour to persuade him to ameliorate some of his more excessive behaviour, bearing in mind that a country like Syria is an artificial construction of ours in the 20s and 30s, and that if it was going to lose that regime, it would implode in an even worse way than it has. So I'm afraid we did back the wrong horse, even though Assad has shown himself to be a particularly ugly individual. But with the help of Putin and Russia, frankly, he's won his civil war. I said at the time that the choice in Syria was between monsters and maniacs, and that was precisely the choice that confronted us, and of the two, the monstrous Assad was the lesser evil than another Islamist swamp. And I must declare an interest here, because with my colleague John Barron, I organised uh, the revolt of Conservative MPs in 2013 that stopped us from doing the same stupid thing in Syria that we did in Libya with entirely predictable results. Michael Clark hindsight is a wonderful thing isn't it what should the UK have done 
Well, there was a moment when uh, David Richards um, as CDS and David Petraeus put together a, an idea, a plan, to, uh, to train uh, people in Jordan, 150,000-odd, who actually could determine the outcome across the Levant. That was a very dangerous plan. Um, but at the time when they put it, and they put it to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State in the, in, in the US, Hillary Clinton was not very keen on it, and Obama was certainly not keen on it, so it just didn't go anywhere. But there was, it, there was a moment before 20, 2015, there was a moment around about 2013, 2014, when uh, more decisive and politically um, focused uh, intervention, both military and political, might have actually saved the situation. But once that had gone, then what we've seen is a slow-motion road accident, which, as Karen said, will just continue mm. because, um, you know, the, the victory of Assad in Syria um, will will not create a stable state because the, the basic instability of 2012-2013 will still be there with Assad back in control, albeit that he's got the Russians and some of the Iranian militias behind him. But Syria will not be a happy country and it bothers Turkey, it bothers the Kurdish uh, separatists, it bothers um, Iraq and Iran in different ways. So it's not going to be a place which will settle. And uh, in a way, we've been ejected from it. Britain and American influence have been thrown out of the Syrian situation. Maybe in the long run, that is, that's better than the alternatives because the Russians will find themselves getting their fingers burnt there fairly soon, I suspect. Well, let's now talk about Yemen, possibly the ghastliest, cruelest war the Middle East has seen in years. Here, the UK and US back the people who've killed the most, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Julian Lewis, are we again backing the wrong side? Uh, well, there isn't a right side to back in this. Um, it, it is another uh, atrocious dilemma. Uh, and uh, I have to say that I've always felt that our closeness to Saudi Arabia, understandable though it is for reasons of uh, defence industry, defence sales and the viability of our defence economy, uh, nevertheless can lead us into some very questionable moral situations or, in fact, immoral situations, as in this case. Mm. Karen von Hippel, the relationship with the mm -hmm. Saudis come under closer scrutiny this year, presumably also Jamal Khashoggi's death, mm -hmm. murder, I should say. Uh, do you think you welcome that kind of scrutiny? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly important. The US Congress just uh, recently... Uh, tried, has been trying to block uh, military aid to Saudi Arabia from the United States. I think this country is considering its options as well. Uh, but, you know, Yemen was already a huge tragedy before the fighting started, and now it's, you know, it's just Do you just see a way worse. out? Well, I mean, there there are options. Uh, there was a national dialogue uh, several years ago that could be kick-started again. I know Martin Griffiths, the UN Special Representative, is really working quite hard to bring people back to the table. It's an enormous struggle. There are certainly possibilities, but even if peace were to be declared tomorrow, you know, the country's run out of water. It's, you know, it's basically, it can't feed itself anyway. And so it's longer term, it's, you know, there are huge challenges. Christopher Lee, what do you think we'll see in the next year in Yemen? Um, it's cliche, but you can manage the, uh, the war, but not certainly the peace. If you get a truce and forget peace treaties but a truce then that's the most difficult thing to, to, to manage in a war like this and the people that you're trying to protect maybe uh, will actually break that truce for you. We shouldn't forget that there is another element of this just as there is in Syria which we haven't sort of got to and that is it is also a, a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran and one of the 
possible things that, that concerns the United Kingdom is the ability to manage the Middle East in some ways for all, all and the involvement, say, of Iran in what we believe is to the backing of, for example, forms of terrorism. So it's a bigger story than just some people fighting in, in Yemen, some people fighting in Syria, uh, and probably the other part that we shouldn't forget is, in fact, what is still going on with Israel, with Gaza, with the Egyptian involvement, with, with Israel in containing what's going on in Gaza. And that is the size of the picture that certainly the British Foreign Secretary has to look at, more than just one item. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now, just before we look ahead to 2019, let's talk about the centenary of the end of the First World War. Uh, Lord Dannett, what's its legacy? Well, I think its legacy is considerable. Um, I've been privileged to be part of the government's um, advisory committee for the World War One commemoration since 2013. And I thought we would have quite a, an interesting time in 2014 in the first year of the centenary commemorations, and it would probably tail off. But I think the reverse has been the case and I think the nation has really risen to the challenge of the centenary of the armistice this year in a phenomenal way right up and down the country both at the national level and right down at the community level and I think it's it's quite properly pointed out to the younger generation that war is an appalling thing that we've got to work really hard to avoid wars like that in, in the future but also there has been several movements to try and uh, raise funds through various charities and various things that have been going on to help those who've been affected by more recent campaigns and I think it's the combination of the historical First and Second World War remembrance on Remembrance Sunday but also remembering that we've had a score of campaigns in the last 20 or 30, 40 years when young people in the armed forces today are still putting their lives on the line and need to be thanked for their service and recognised for what they've done. Dr Julian Lewis, do you think the legacy of the First World War, the kind of things Lord Dunnett was talking about there, has got through to the younger generation? I can't tell whether it's got through to the younger generation, but certainly we in Parliament have been doing our best to try and draw the appropriate lessons from this. Uh, there was a major debate on the centenary of the armistice, uh, which was held in Parliament on the 6th of November, and there were some very interesting speeches. I listed no fewer than nine lessons that I drew <laughs> from the, the course of the uh, First World War, such as uh, the failure to be able to predict when a war like that could break out because they had barely not 10 years warning but 10 days warning of the outbreak of that war for example and the dangers of having a series of overlapping bilateral alliances rather than a single clear multilateral alliance and there were seven more that I haven't time mm -hmm. to put mm. forward now but but have a look I do urge people look up that debate in Hansard online 6th of November there's an awful lot of valuable stuff there so all I can say is if young people are willing to <laughs> listen it's there for them to read. Some good bedtime reading there. <laughs> Let's look over the horizon now to 2019. Close to home, Brexit is going to have a major impact, particularly when it comes to finances. Uh, Julian Lewis again, if, if the economists are right, then the government will have to cut spending. How will this affect the Ministry of Defence? Well, I don't think the economists are right. What we're getting here is a repeat. I, I, I stress I, I'm a Brexiter, so you must allow for that in what I say. Uh, but we're getting a repeat of what was said about the terrible things that would happen the moment we voted to leave, and those terrible things didn't happen and most of these predictions are as they say themselves the worst case analysis they never give us the best case analysis or the position somewhere in between which will probably turn out to be the truth Karen von Hippel, has Rusi been looking at the security threat possibilities of Brexit? Yeah, we, and a no-deal Brexit, of course. Well, we've been looking at the defence and security implications of Brexit. Uh, we, obviously, as a charity, we have to stay out of 
taking a position on, on either side, but we look at the implications of, for example, sharing of databases uh, with Europol and some of the challenges that will be uh, in place. But we, uh, you know, several publications as well on it, European Defense, uh, uh, European Defense Funds, a whole range of issues that will be impacted by Brexit positively and negatively. Mm. But I'm staying out of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> staying on wise. the fence on that one. Michael yeah. Clark, how challenging do you think Brexit is for defence? It's quite important. I mean, in theory, defence and security should be the, the element which is least affected mm -hmm. by Brexit because it, it exists within NATO and our security relations with our partners should, should be separate from that. And we have a very strong hand to play over with intelligence and counterterrorism and policing and so on. That's, that's all absolutely true. And what worries me is that a bad Brexit, whatever that might or might not become, could bleed over into NATO relationships and into our bilateral relationships with our allies. And so I think Britain's got to work very hard in the next year to make sure that doesn't happen and to show through real um, activity that we intend to do everything we possibly can to make NATO stronger and to resist the pressures NATO is now under. So we've got to be an even better NATO member in the future than we've been in the past and, we, and try to insulate NATO and our security relations from any of the negative fallout from a Brexit that may go wrong. Um, I, and, you know, whether Brexit is the right or wrong thing to do, it will take us 10 years to convince the rest of the world that there is a good outcome to all of this. If there is, fine. Um, but we've got to work very hard in this next decade to actually make a success of Brexit or to limit the damage, whichever way you look at it. Mm -hmm. And the defence and security element will be key to that 10-year um, element, to that 10-year of, act of activity that we've really got to strategically embark upon. Lord Dannett, we heard this week that uh, some 3,500 military personnel are on standby in, in the case of a, a no-deal Brexit. Uh, is that the right way to use the military and how do you think they might be used? Well, I've got no difficulty at all with um, warning off the military that they might be required. After all, the armed forces are the, the nation's collective body of people to be used as last resort, if you like. Um, how, might, how might they be used? Frankly, at this stage, I haven't really got the first idea. But the important thing is that the armed forces are always there, they're always ready, and you just look in recent history, whether it's fires, floods, foot and mouth, <clears throat> whatever it is, we've turned our hand to it, and more than happy to do so, and it's right that we do it in the nation's best interests. I'll tell you, the, um, the, the army was very good at fixing mad cow disease, I don't think Bre anything comes up with Brexit is going to be much of a problem. Don't forget, it is it is not defending the nation against rioting or anything like that. It is it is purely a straightforward sort of uh, you know fixing problems that might appear that the army can do better than anybody else. Right, let's move on from Brexit now, just for a moment. Uh, what else are we going to see in 2019, Lord Dannett? You're particularly interested on the fate of veterans, people who served in Northern Ireland. Well, I am, and I wouldn't want to use the word fate either. What I want to see is the government doing the right thing by the hundreds of thousands of troops who served in Northern Ireland from 1969 onwards and stop the uh, vexatious, vexatious uh, harassing of a number of these individuals. Um, I am encouraged that I think the government, after a lot of pressure, has now got it. Secretary of State for Defence is now in the lead on this issue, and I and a small number of people this week uh, had a meeting, very successful meeting, with the Attorney-General, and I think the government is moving away from um, investigating soldiers with a presumption to prosecute to a statutory presumption against prosecution. 
more moving towards um, trying to understand the facts of, what's, of, of, of an incident so there can be an element of reconciliation. I think that's really, really important. But it's absolutely critical that the government is full square on this one. Otherwise, they're going to undermine the morale of today's military if they think that a decision that they take in a difficult situation might result in them getting a tap on the shoulder or on the knock on the door 30 or 40 years later. It's not acceptable. The facts don't stack up with it. And the government has got to sort it out, I think is now beginning to do so. Dr Julian Lewis, what's in the Defence Committee's diary for next year? Well, I'd just like to take up that particular theme. We've already done one report on this issue and in its response the government promised that they would consider a statute of limitations coupled with a truth recovery process uh, as an option in their consultation and then they didn't do it. There are actually a lot of internal fights going on uh, within Cabinet about this. We had a professor of law from Oxford just a, a week ago telling us that probably the best way to deal with the matter is simply to put ourselves in defiance of the European Court of Human Rights on this issue. Many nations do on various issues. Nothing terrible happens to them. We cannot have lawfare being used to undermine our armed forces in perpetuity like this. Dr Karen von Hippel, your, your thoughts for next year, 2019, what are you predicting? Uh, well, I'm, what I'm worried about is uh, several countries that matter being too distracted by their internal issues, e.g. this country, it's obviously Brexit. In the US, it'll be the ongoing investigation into President Trump and Trump just being distracted. Uh, European countries are distracted by their own populist internal challenges and therefore where is the leadership on promoting this rules-based order and values? And then of course if there, a, a vacuum continues, uh, you know, countries such as Russia, Iran, China, etc. fill that void. Michael Clark, your thoughts for 2019? Oh, the biggest single thing that I think matters to defence, or the one that's worth thinking about, is Galileo. Um, if we go ahead with our own Galileo programme and stop the European industries, particularly French industries, trying to keep us out of the programme, make a point of it, it would be a big moment for us to say, right, we'll do it ourselves. And in doing it ourselves, we'll partner with interesting countries like Japan and Australia, and we will become a non-United States global uh, provider of a satellite-based system which is GPS available but also uh, of a military uh, capacity that our military can use. And if we took this, the decision to spend the money and go ahead with Galileo, I think that would be a really important pointer to the future and a really good thing for defence and a good thing for the Defence Secretary if he can swing it with the rest of the Cabinet. Christopher Lee. If he can swing it with the Chief Secretary to the Treasury he means. Um, <laughs> Listen, uh, it, it, it sounds boring, but I think government, especially with seeing what's happening with, as far as Europe is concerned, got to think far more about presenting the public with the idea of what British foreign policy is based upon and where they want the MOD to guarantee that foreign policy where they can do it. We're back to sort of basics in that, and there's a lot of change going to take place, and I think the British public is, is smart enough to sort of take it on board, and I think the government should sort of stand up to that. Just briefly before we finish, if we can go around all of you, uh, the, comparing to this time last year, is the world a more dangerous or less dangerous place? Julian Lewis. It's pretty dangerous, and uh, you've got the assassins like Putin and Mohammed bin Salman greeting each other with high fives in Argentina, and that, for me, is the image of the year. Karen von Hippel. Equally dangerous. Christopher Lee? Yeah, it's, it's, it's about the same as dangerous, but I don't think that the, the brighter people are actually running the world at the moment. Lord Dannett. 
It's equally dangerous, and the danger changes its characteristics on a yearly basis. We've just got to be very vigilant. Michael Clark. The world is getting better in all sorts of ways, and this year was better than last year in all sorts of, of different humanitarian ways, but it's more volatile. That's the point. Um, lots of underlying benefits, but volatility that's getting greater. Lord Dunnett, just before we finish today, as the most recent serving member of the armed forces with us, um, could you just reflect on what kind of a year 2018 has been and your message to the armed forces for 2019? Well, it's been an extraordinary year. We've touched on it in this programme. I think whatever you think of the carrier strike programme, it's wonderful to see the, the, um, the Navy having such a significant boost and also, uh, as has been referred to, the uh, HMS Duncan television programme really put the Navy in the, in the spotlight, right. as RAF 100 has as well. Um, we've just got to keep going, okay. make sure we get our manning right and keep the pressure on the government to up the funding for defence. And there we must leave it. Thank you to all of my guests today. Did you agree with what they had to say? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. We're back in 2019, so for me, Kate Jabot and the rest of the SITREP team. May we hope you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Bye-bye for now. On digital radio, FM and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is Forces Radio. The FBS. The Army's been called in.